Hi, and welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. This is Dr. Sadaf Lodi, and I would love for you to leave me a review of this podcast and also to share and like it and share it with your friends, see what they think and let me know. I would love to shout you out on social media. And also, I would love for you to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Sadaf OBGYN, as well as TikTok. I also have started a YouTube channel at Dr. Sadaf Intimacy Coach. I'd love for you to follow me on all of those channels. And most importantly, I'd love for you to become a patient. I am now accepting telehealth patients for sexual health as well as menopause health in New York and Michigan. So if you are a woman that is looking for a doctor that understands you and can actually take the time to listen to all of your concerns, reach out to me. Reach out at drsadaf at drsadaf.com. And I would love to see you as a patient. And now for the episode. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sadaf Lodi, and this episode is everything you need to know about intimacy after a breast cancer diagnosis. Before I get into it, the first thing I wanna make very clear is that we will not be giving any type of medical advice. So if you have any questions about your health, please speak with your healthcare provider. And if you have any questions about your religion, please speak with your friendly neighborhood religious leader. This is the Muslim podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman that talks about sex. And before we get into the episode, something else I would love for you to do is share and like this episode and make sure you review us and leave those great five-star reviews that help us with our showcasing on the podcast. So for example, the Apple podcast and um also Spotify or wherever you can find podcasts, please be sure to leave us a five-star review because that really helps us out and helps me to bring more educational information and resources to you. So thank you for listening and please make sure you subscribe to my podcast channel and also that uh, you share and uh, share with all your friends. So Thank you, Dr. Agrawal, Dr. Layla Agrawal. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and to talk about sex after cancer. Awesome. So for those listeners and viewers that may not know um, who you are, if you could just give us a little bit of an intro just so that um, they know what you do and uh, where you are. Absolutely. So I'm a medical oncologist and I specialize in the treatment of breast cancer. I practice in Louisville, Kentucky. And so my focus in my practice is treating women who have uh, breast cancer, treating people who are diagnosed with breast cancer and other types of cancer. And along the way, you know, I came to realize that so many patients are dealing with sexual concerns after going through cancer treatment. And, you know, really our ability to meet those needs was limited. And so I uh, started a sexual health program at our hospital to be able to 
um, really talk to women about sexual health concerns after cancer, not just after breast cancer, but any cancer diagnosis, as well as those women who um, may not have a diagnosis of cancer, but through um, finding that they have a genetic mutation may have undergone preventative surgery, such as prophylactic mastectomies, removal of the breast, or prophylactic removal of ovaries, which can cause premature menopause, and also um, sexual health concerns there as well. Mm, Wow, that's great. So talk to me a little bit about your journey. So you are a medical oncologist with a specialty in breast cancer, is that Mm -hmm. that correct? And then um, tell me a little bit about that and what led you to do the specialty. Yeah. So, you know, throughout all my medical training, I've been very interested in treating patients with cancer. Uh, My own mother had a breast cancer diagnosis when she was in her 40s. She's doing well. Um, And I think that really stuck with me. I've always just been very drawn to the field of oncology and and treating cancer. Um, And so, as I went through my training, I became more and more interested in breast cancer specifically. um, And I just really enjoy enjoy working with people who've been diagnosed with breast cancer and who are going through treatment. So as, as a medical oncologist, my role is that I work with uh, medications that can help treat cancer, and I also do follow-up of cancer. So I may meet people when they're just getting their cancer diagnosis, and I work with the surgeon, radiation doctor, uh, sometimes plastic surgeon, other doctors to come up with a treatment plan. And then I do the portion that involves chemotherapy, if that's part of the treatment plan, and also hormone blocking therapies, if that's part of the treatment plan. Um, And then I do follow up over the years. And I also work with patients who have a diagnosis of metastatic cancer, meaning it's spread to other parts of their body and, you know, go through treatments with them there. So I really get to spend, you know, many years with patients in different phases of of their diagnosis and treatment. Sure. So what is it that you were seeing in those patients? Uh, I'm sure you were seeing a lot of, um, I guess I would call them menopausal symptoms in patients that were undergoing chemo or perhaps they had like prophylactic, um, you know, ovarian oophorectomy, um, had their ovaries removed. And so what were you noticing in those patients? So after going through a breast cancer diagnosis and treatment, there's many different sexual concerns that someone may experience. And these range from things like vaginal dryness and decreased lubrication. They may include pain with intercourse, um, body image concerns. And another big one is loss of desire or interest, so low libido too. And many times these concerns can be very distressing, you know, really sometimes unexpected or, um, you know, unclear how to address them. And we're causing a lot of distress in my patients. And so I wanted to be able to better uh, be able to diagnose and address and manage and get people back to a, you know, fulfilling and satisfying quality of life, which includes their sexual life as well. Absolutely. So 
You know, I think that uh, what people tend to forget is that there are so many psychological factors that go into the diagnosis of cancer. And like you just mentioned, right, the decreased libido, you have the body image issues, but you also probably have a lot of decreased sensitivity um, after multiple surgeries, perhaps if a patient has experienced that. But what type of... Um, psychological issues might you see? I, I imagine that there might be some anxiety or depression involved. Exactly. So when, you know, now when I approach a patient who's having sexual concerns after a cancer diagnosis, I look at it and try to figure out um, through a biopsychosocial lens what's going on. So clearly with the cancer diagnosis and the treatments, there's lots of biological changes that happen. Um, but then equally important are the psychological, so the mental and the emotional changes. So just receiving a cancer diagnosis can cause um, you know, a lot of stress. Sometimes we see depression, anxiety, insomnia come about too. Um, some of these mental health symptoms are also exacerbated by the treatments, including some of the hormonal blocking treatments or hormone lowering treatments that we give. And then with surgical changes, with chemotherapy, with other treatments, there can be changes in people's bodies that result in body image concerns. And really, body image is a huge issue. It doesn't have to do solely with how you look or how you want to look. It truly has to do with how somebody feels in their own body and how they act based on those feelings. And so um, it is something that definitely can be disturbed during going through cancer treatment, diagnosis, and the and the after effects too. Um, and so really that's something that if a woman feels um, off in her own body, if she doesn't feel comfortable in her own skin, which has changed going through all of these treatments, then it's hard to reconnect um, with sexuality and approaching desire and libido and initiation and things like that. So, you know, really figuring out if somebody is having distress related to body image is really important. And then being able to refer and connect people with appropriate resources to help with counseling that can really help um, develop a more positive body image. Right. I imagine that there's probably a lot of coaching that goes in there. Um, where do you suggest, like, for example, where do you start off with? So a patient that is experiencing distress, you know, their body image or a piece of their body that has been, you know, taken off or moved because of the cancer diagnosis. And now they just feel like a different person and don't really fully feel like themselves anymore? Where do you start with them? You know, how do you help them out? Yeah, the first thing I try to do is communicate how common that is. And so that people don't feel alone in those feelings. And, you know, it, it's it, the emotions that somebody may go through are all going to be unique. They're all going to be different. There's going to be different factors in there. But what I hear a lot from some of my patients is almost um, you know, a guilt that they are concerned about something like body image, maybe feeling in their own mind or from others that that has been told that it's frivolous, you know, or that it's not important. So one of the first things that I do is just clarify that these concerns are very common, that they are integral to how we feel as a person, um, not only with sexuality, but just identifying with yourself, um, and that they can get better with treatment. And so those are sort of the, the, that's the starting point. That's where I 
try to say that, that you're not alone, you know, this is something common and it can get better. Right. I think it's probably so important, especially hearing it from their oncologist and validating their feelings, right? And making them understand that those feelings are not frivolous and that it's not, I don't know, perhaps, you know, being vain or anything like that, right? That these are real concerns and valid concerns. Um, how do you help patients with their sexuality in terms of if they are, say, their desire and or, you know, changes that may have occurred due to um, decreasing estrogen in their body? Yeah. So, you know, one of the really common things that we see are biological changes that result from cancer treatment. So there's different kinds of breast cancer. Some of them have hormone receptors on the cancer, others don't. But regardless, when a person goes through chemotherapy, if they are premenopausal, there's a chance that the chemotherapy can induce early menopause. And so even without a hormone lowering or hormone blocking treatment, a woman may experience premature menopause and the symptoms of having a lower, lower estrogen. And then for those uh, patients who have cancers that are estrogen receptor positive, oftentimes their cancer treatment plan involves either hormone lowering or hormone blocking type treatments. Um, and those can further cause menopausal symptoms. Mm. So people may feel hot flashes or night sweats or achy joints or difficulty sleeping or mood or, you know, a whole, a whole long list of possible side effects doesn't mean everyone's going to get them. Um, and then sexual symptoms are on there too. So vaginal dryness, vulvar dryness, irritation, urinary urgency, all of those are related to the changes in the hormones. And so, you know, first of all, I try to assess for any uh, biological changes like that. So if a woman is having symptoms of vulvar or vaginal dryness for hormone receptor positive uh, breast cancers, we usually start by recommending non-hormonal treatment. So use of uh, topical vaginal moisturizers and lubricants to help with those symptoms. And so nowadays, um, you know, there are over-the-counter options that include the addition of hyaluronic acid in them. And when used three or even up to five times per week, they can help with that dryness. And so really explaining that that moisturizer needs to be used on an ongoing and regular basis to uh, replace the moisture that's no longer being produced by the body because of the low estrogen can really help even above and beyond the lubricants. Um, and then for reducing friction or discomfort from friction that's associated with vaginal dryness and decreased lubrication, I talk about using vaginal lubricants. And so, you know, I think I'm, I'm pretty picky about which products that I recommend because if women are having some dryness or irritation to begin with, then they wanna make sure that the products that they're using are not gonna be increasing that or exacerbating that. So we talk about certain water-based lubricants. And if those aren't slippery enough or not long-lasting enough, we talk about silicone-based lubricants that can be longer-lasting, um, you know, provide more slippery feeling to them, and that can help overcome some of that uh, discomfort due to decreased lubrication. Hmm. Yeah. How do you help women with um, decreased libido? I imagine that there's probably a lot of that, you know, and I wonder... Um, where you think that mostly stems from? Is it from the diagnosis? Is it from, you know, perhaps mourning the loss of their previous life or their previous body? 
or do you think it's from the menopausal symptoms or I guess maybe all of the above? Yeah, exactly. All of the above. So, um, you know, loss of libido or decreased libido is a really common symptom and it's one that can be really distressing or upsetting. I mean, some women really couldn't care less and it's not a problem to them. So it's not a problem, but other really, others really, you know, kind of mourn the loss, as you said, of something they had before a fulfilling sex life with their partner. And then now feel like they have maybe zero interest in having sex and they miss that and they want that back. So first of all, I make sure that there's no physical concerns that we can address medically. So in addition to the dryness, you know, that we talked about and sometimes using a topical hormone like a vaginal estrogen is a component of that treatment. Um, I, I see pretty commonly that women may have the symptom of pain that's caused by pelvic floor dysfunction. And sometimes they tell me they might have attempted to have intercourse and it was extremely painful. And so now they are concerned to have to try and attempt to have intercourse again. And if their partner's aware that it was painful, oftentimes that also brings up, um, you know, concerns on the partner side of not wanting to hurt, you know, hurt them. And so now you're kind of dealing with the couple as a unit and trying to figure out what's happening, not only physically, but also, you know, mentally, emotionally, and interpersonal in the relationship. So first I try to treat any physical symptoms that, that may be there. And then, you know, we, we touched on body image. So we try to address that, refer for counseling when that's appropriate. And then the first thing that I do in addressing libido is just sort of taking a step back and talking about the fact that not all libido is spontaneous. So many times people are accustomed to this idea of spontaneous libido or spontaneous desire where they just have that drive. But for many people, and I see this really commonly after going through cancer treatment, the level of spontaneous desire may drop, but they still may, may be able to access a responsive or reactive desire. So what that means is desire doesn't necessarily come first. The sexual situation, physical arousal or mental arousal may come first, and then the desire to have sex can kick in. And so that's called you know, a responsive or reactive desire. So just explaining that that is a normal, typical type of desire and the goal doesn't have to be restoring the spontaneous desire. The goal is being able to have a fulfilling sex life. And so just simple behavioral changes or mindset shifts a little bit, looking at it a bit differently can be helpful. So for one, making sure that you're, that people are maintaining their emotional connection with their partner is really important. So sometimes when the desire to have sex goes down, um, the the affection goes down too. So just the, um, you know, holding hands or kissing or cuddling or, you know, those, those affectionate touches may fall by the wayside because um, the woman might be concerned, oh, if I, you know, if we're kissing, then it's going to lead to sex and I'm worried because I have pain or I have no desire or these other things. So we talk about creating space and setting ground rules for being able to foster that emotional connection and that physical affection where sex is not on the table in the beginning. So you're still trying to connect that, strengthen that um, emotional bond. So we talk about that. And then when, when um, somebody feels like they're at the point where they want to try to start having um, intercourse again, then we talk about setting uh, time and space 
for intimacy. And so um, really planning ahead, finding a time of day, a time during the week when there's no distractions, when people have privacy, when they're not exhausted, um, because that's an issue also after cancer treatment. And just having that time devoted to your partner and to be able to just enjoy each other's company, however that might look. And so those are just kind of simple starting points is that mindset shift about spontaneous versus reactive desire, the idea that you plan ahead and you create that time and space for intimacy, and then making sure that all physical issues are addressed as well. Yeah, I love that. I love that because it's um, it's interesting because I talk about the same things. And uh, in fact, it, you know, it's really important what you said with the spontaneous desire. You know, I know a lot of times we think about in like a new relationship and we tend to think like everything is spontaneous. But in actuality, when you think about it, you know, you when you first start seeing your partner or your spouse, whatever, you know, you really set you know, you schedule dates, you plan for you plan where you're going to eat, you know, where you're going to go, where you're going to eat, <clears throat> what your date is going to look like, how it's going to end. And so even though it seems like it's spontaneous, you know, really isn't because you really plan out everything. And I think that, you know, what you also mentioned um, about the responsive desire, you know, I think a lot of times that's what tends to happen in long-term relationships. And um, a lot of times, just what you said, right, is that you being open to that sexual stimulus and then, you know, realizing that the arousal will come first and, and that, you know, once your body or your mind is aroused, then the desire can follow and that's okay and that's normal. And um, for those that don't know, this is the female sexual response cycle and it was first coined by Rosemary Basson in 2000. So I totally agree with what you're saying. And I, I think that's so important to realize and to normalize um, so that people don't think that there's something wrong with them or that, you know, they're not having this spontaneous desire, but rather responsive desire is just as is just as good. And then, you know, we also have that formative desire, which is desire that comes about after, um, you know, uh, imagery or um, fantasy or things like that, that can also help with desire. So I think that's great that you address all of those issues and that you normalize all of that. Um, and how have patients responded to this? So, you know, I think especially the point about the responsive versus the spontaneous desire, sometimes you can really see a, a flip in the mindset, like, oh, I could actually do this. Because when someone feels like they truly have zero spontaneous desire, it can feel really um, intimidating. Like, how do I get out of this? But then when they start thinking about, oh, responsive, yeah, we can we can do these these steps. Like this is within our reach to do these things and sort of see a path forward. And of course, that's just really the first, you know, few steps on the path. There's many other things that can be helpful too with the libido. So, you know, we're we're lucky enough to have um, some really good sex therapists in our community. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I'm able to refer patients to a certified sex therapist um, for more in-depth, um, you know, evaluation and and advice for the patient or for the couple. So that can be very helpful. And, you know, really um, 
it's a relationship. It's a partnership. So a lot of times going through cancer, cancer treatment, there's more to it than just, you know, the libido, the desire. So sometimes roles shift. So especially when people are going through difficult treatments where, you know, the patient might be getting chemo or surgery and have drains and their partner is, is doing a lot of caregiving. Sometimes the roles from an intimate partnership switch to patient caregiver. Mm. And then, um, you know, it, it can be hard to work to work out of that. And even the partner might have seen their, their, you know, their loved one in pain or, you know, have pain when the chest is touched and just feel really hesitant to do that. And so, you know, working with a sex therapist can help both people in the couple kind of understand, you know, where are we and, and how to move forward. And then, you know, medications play a role also. There's many medicines that may be prescribed to someone who's gone through cancer that can negatively impact the libido. So if that's a concern, certainly reviewing the medication list, making sure that they're all appropriate, maybe some changes can be made about which ones might be contributing to the, um, you know, diminished libido. And then there's a couple medications that um, are FDA approved for women to help to help with libido. They are not specifically approved for people whose loss of libido is the result of a medical diagnosis or treatment. Um, but, you know, I think these are options that we can discuss as well. And there's certainly some earlier preliminary evidence for flibanserin in patients who have diagnosis of breast cancer who are receiving endocrine therapy. Um, in a single arm study that shows that it can improve um, it can improve sexual function. Of course, that needs to be followed with randomized data as well. That's fantastic. You know, I love how you make mention that it's, you know, multimodal uh, treatment, right? Like it's not just that you're dealing with, you know, there's a person is a whole and there's so many different aspects to that person. They have the medical diagnosis that they're dealing with and they have the psychological component. And then there's also the sexual health component and that, you know, it's so important for physicians to be able to treat all of those things. And I think it's so amazing that you as a medical, medical oncologist, you know, feel comfortable treating sexual health issues as well. I think that's so important. And just like what you said, I think in the medical community, you know, sex is really taboo. And it's really ironic, right? I mean, there are so many physicians that do not feel comfortable talking about sex. And that's really unfortunate for our patients, because when they have the medical health issue, and when they have those sexual health concerns, who else are they supposed to go to, right? And when the physicians themselves don't feel comfortable talking about these topics, and really don't are not able to offer solutions, then it just leaves our patients without any answers. And, you know, who else are they going to ask or go to? They're going to ask Dr. Google, right? Because they don't have, they can't get their answers from their own physicians. So I think, you know, I'd really like to applaud you and um, the efforts that you've made as a medical oncologist to talk about these. I know a lot of, uh, I'm in New York and I know a lot of oncologists and I know that for sure they do not feel comfortable talking or discussing sexual health with their patients. And if they do, you know, there isn't much that they offer them except for like coconut oil, mm -hmm. you know, which is fine, but you know, it's not the only solution. So, mm -hmm. um, 
you know, it's really important, I think, that, you know, if you are a patient that's listening to this episode and if you have sexual health concerns and if you've come up with a diagnosis of cancer, that you find a physician that is able to help navigate this realm for you and give you options other than, you know, coconut oil. And again, like I said, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's, um, but there are other options and it's important for you to know what options there are and, uh, you know, what's right for you in terms of your diagnosis and how you can be helped. So I'm glad you do that. So thank you so much. So what would be some pointers that you would give to your uh, patients or advice to somebody that was trying to seek out help? What would you advise them? Yeah. So, um, first of all, just to say that sexual health concerns after having a cancer diagnosis and going through treatment are very common. And, you know, without seeking care, most women will actually never be asked about any sexual concerns, which is, which is crazy considering that we know that these treatments cause sexual health concerns and they're really common. So what I would say is, you know, just know that, these concerns are common. And if you bring it up or ask questions about it, you're asking questions about a medical issue that is important. So I truly believe that it's the physician's or the medical provider's job to ask those questions. But the reality is we know that's not happening. So I would encourage people to ask the question. So before starting a treatment, um, you know, you can ask whether there are any, there's any impact to sexual health. Also, people can ask whether anything can be done to minimize the impact to sexual health, anything, um, you know, upfront or preventative that can be done. And when issues arise, to ask what are the treatment options for this concern and what are the risks and benefits of each of those, those issues. And if the oncologist or the person they're talking to, the medical um, professional, doesn't seem comfortable discussing it, to ask if they can be referred to a sexual health expert. And so, you know, it would be my dream that every cancer care center would have a sexual health program for women, um, but that's not the current reality. You know, it would be my dream that every oncologist is equipped to address all these concerns, um, but we know it's not included in training programs currently. So there is still a lot of work to be done on our end to get everybody up to speed. So in that period of time, I would um, encourage people to be empowered to ask the questions about sexuality and know that they are valid and important and should not be minimized. And so we hear a lot on, you know, responses we get on social media that patients maybe felt, maybe um, told things that make them feel like, oh, you should just be glad you're alive after a cancer diagnosis. And that's totally inappropriate because many of these concerns are treatable. And some of these treatments are are simple and easily accessible, and they are really important and vital to quality of life. So I would say just start by asking the questions. If the person you're talking to is not familiar with the answers, they might still be able to refer you or put you in touch with someone who could help. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Yeah, I think that that is really, really important. And it's so important for patients to feel empowered and educated on the topic and to know that they're, you know, a lot of times there is help and there is help for their symptoms that they're experiencing. And if we don't, you know, have the answer, perhaps we can find it. And if there isn't a solution, then maybe there is 
a second best solution, right? So I think that to always make sure and you advocate for yourself and know what it is that you want because sexual health is part of health. And I think it's really unfair that a lot of times providers will minimize sexual health. And just like what you said, you know, just say something like, oh, well, you should be so grateful that you're alive. But, you know, to be alive is there's so many components to a person's life. And to be alive is is one, you know, but to also have your sexual health and your and your dignity and all of those other things, those are all very important as well. So, you know, I'm so glad that you're out there and you're doing this and that you're promoting this information because it's really important. Thank you. So, um, for people that are interested and would like to get in touch with you, where can they find you? How can they follow you? We'd love to know. Yes. Yeah. So I'm on Instagram at Dr. Layla Agarwal. I'm on TikTok at the same name, Dr. Layla Agarwal. And I'm on Twitter at Layla Agarwal MD. Awesome. And if somebody is in the Kentucky Louisville area, you are um, at the Cancer Center there. Is that correct? That's right. All right. Very good. Well, thank you so much. And I really appreciate your time and all the information that you gave. It's so valuable and so important for patients. So thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks. And so, well, we are done here and it's been real and really intimate. And remember, this is not meant to be any type of medical advice. So if you have any issues, please speak with your healthcare provider. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast. So thank you for listening to the podcast and make sure you leave us a review, share and like the podcast. And if you leave me a review, I'd love to shout you out on social media. So be sure that you share it with all your friends and thanks for listening. Thanks.